See, I don't know if it was your seventh grade teacher, your eighth grade teacher, your ninth grade teacher, but somewhere along the line they told you there's no such thing as a dumb question. I think we have ample evidence that that's just not true. There are some questions. Why do they put deer crossing signs in busy places? Why not move them someplace? Yeah, right. So I was just running through the internet the other day looking for dumb questions. Some lady posted on Yahoo Answers this question. How do you post a question on Yahoo Answers? Some lady called information and asked what the number for 911 was. Do you understand that? <laughs> Some questions are just dumb. Or maybe they're just dumb people, I don't know. But, but there, there's some questions that seem dumb to me. Then, then there's some questions that are, that are just kind of silly and not important. Uh, someone, someone asked the question, what was, Mount, what was the highest mountain in the world before Mount Everest was discovered? Do you know what it was? It was Mount Everest. It just hadn't been discovered yet. Someone said, how much dirt is in a hole that's two feet wide by two feet by four feet? You know how much dirt's in that? None, because it's a hole. So let's try, let's try this one. It's audience participation. Uh, I want you to out loud spell the word ghost. Ready, go. Yeah, okay, now, now spell most. Some of you got an extra letter in there, but that's okay. How about roast? Yeah, what do you put in a toaster? Bread. Bread, you're right. Some of you said toast. Toast is what you get out of the toaster after you put bread in it. There's some questions that work better than others. Today I want to talk to you about a couple of questions. They're not dumb ones. And they're not silly ones. One is a question that we tend to ask and maybe we shouldn't because it's not as profitable as we'd like to think. And one is a question we should ask. And the first question, the one we maybe ought to rethink a little bit is the question, why? More particularly, why is God doing this to me? Now that question is only asked when something goes wrong. You know, if you get an unexpected A on a test, you don't go, why is God doing this to me? If, if you have had your eyes on a girl and she starts flirting with you and she pays attention to you, most guys don't go around going, why is God doing this to me? Oh, this is so horrible. You know, you're just thankful, thankful that it's happening. Nobody asks the why questions when good stuff happens. We tend, however, to sometimes ask, why is God doing this when bad stuff happens? I, I'm not sure that's the best question. First of all, it presumes that God is doing the bad stuff, that he's causing it. As a lifetime pastor, I've had to deal with people in pain asking these kind of questions. I remember talking with someone, a drunk driver had crossed the center line and had a head-on collision and someone had died and someone asked me the question, why did God cause this and uh, the question I asked back as gently as I could even though they, they were in pain is why are we blaming God for this God didn't make the guy get drunk God didn't make him get behind the wheel of a car God didn't make him cross the center line if, the, if that outcome is evil why wouldn't we maybe think about putting the blame at the feet of the evil one because sometimes we just blame God for stuff that God didn't do 
There are lots of things like that. A lady once struggled with me because her grandma was dying and she said, why is God doing this? And as gently as I could, I wanted to kind of parse out what was going on. I said, well, how old is grandma? She said, 94. And is she sick? Well, she has cancer. And I said, is she a Christian? She said, yes. I said, then it may be sad for you, but isn't that a good thing for her? That she gets to be pain-free and she gets to go to heaven? Now, it's still painful for us, but this, this person was wrestling with the unfairness of God when the reality is 94 is a lot longer than lots of people live. You, you, you just sort of end up dying at some point in your life. That's how life works, the frailty of human flesh. To blame God is kind of messing with the natural order that we exist in. But it's not just when life stuff happens that we ask the question. I remember asking the why God question. I was lying in a hospital bed at Marion General Hospital. I was a senior in college. It was the first week in October. I'd had a motorcycle accident. And um, I didn't realize quite how badly I was injured. They only gave me a 30% chance of saving my legs. So I'm very thankful they didn't have to amputate it, all that kind of stuff. But I laid in the hospital bed. And I asked why God. I... I rarely have what feel like audible answers from God. Maybe three times in my life or so I have one. I got one that day. I said, why God? And the answer was, you're a bad motorcycle driver. <laughs> to be honest, it was the first time I'd ever ridden a motorcycle. My roommate had one. I said, you want to take it for a spin? And without much instruction, I climbed on. And within a couple of minutes, I'd managed to lose control of it and run it into the back of a car and crush my leg and all that kind of stuff. And so, somebody asks, have you ever ridden a motorcycle again? I said, no. Some of you right now are tempted to say, you want to take mine for a spin? And Patty says, no. I've had my first and last motorcycle ride. The why? It was my lack of skill and my stupidity and not getting better instruction. Why do I keep getting chapel holds placed on my account? It's not God's fault. There are the rules. and Actually, that's probably a really bad illustration in this room because you're here. The why is God doing this to me is often not the best question. But for a minute, let's imagine that God did cause the stuff we have problems about. Why, God, are you doing this? What, what if he answered? This would put us in the place of judging God, of trying to understand. And it presumes we would agree. In the Old Testament, there was a guy named Job. He had some tough stuff happening to him, and God allowed it. And then Job spends a bunch of time questioning, why is this going on? Why did it happen? He had a wife who just told him to curse God and die. I mean, not real supportive. He had friends who weren't all that helpful. And for 38 chapters, they're just wrestling through this question of why did this evil happen? Why did this bad thing happen? And finally, in the start of chapter 38, God speaks. God says, who is this that questions my wisdom with such ignorant words? Brace yourself like a man, because I have some questions for you. Let me tell you, I never want to ask God a question that he responds with, brace yourself. 
Is your seatbelt fastened low and tied across your lap? You know, because we're about to have at it. Brace yourself, Job. And then God begins to ask him a series of questions. Job, where were you when I put the earth together? Where were you when I made light and darkness? And the questions just keep rolling for four chapters, question after question after question, where the God of the universe is just peppering Job with questions. Until Job finally recognizes that he was asking about things far too big for him to understand. Let me suggest a better question than why. It's what. What in the midst of this situation do I need to do? What do I need to be? How should I respond? What should I do in response to the things that are, that are coming down on me? Now, each of us has areas of disappointment in our lives. I was five or six years old when my brother took me to my first professional baseball game. It was at Wrigley Field. We went to watch the Cubs. Yeah. Uh, My brother was a baseball fan because he was my hero. I became a baseball fan. I fell in love with baseball. I fell in love with the Cubs. And they spent the next 60 years disappointing me. Every, every spring, you entered the spring with hope. My favorite baseball player was Ernie Banks, and Ernie Banks would, would have this, you know, the Cubs will be fine in 69, the Cubs will be great in 68, it'll be heaven in 67, and, and I drank the Kool-Aid. I mean, I just believed it was going to happen, and then they would lose yet again, and you'd hope for next year, and you would wait for next year. Well, I tell you, last year was next year. Those of you who are Cubs fans can celebrate with that. But you know what's the problem with me is? Sunday the season starts again. And I don't know whether to believe the pundits that tell me the Cubs are one of the best teams in baseball and they're poised for a long run or to give in to my historical training and say, oh man, what if? And be prepare myself for disappointment. But can I tell you something? If the Cubs win this year, it'll be great. If they lose this year, it's okay. Because as hard as it is for me to say, it's just baseball. The earth doesn't, the sun doesn't rise on baseball. The earth doesn't rotate on baseball. It's just baseball. However, some areas of disappointment are deeper, more significant to us, more painful. You were engaged, and she broke it off. She says, you're not the one, and You ask yourself the question, who am I? What's wrong with me? You went home last weekend just to hang out with some friends and your parents sat you down and said, you know, we've been having struggles for years. Now you're at college and you seem to be doing okay. We're getting a divorce. And your world gets rocked just a little bit. You wonder if anything is secure. You flunk anatomy for the second time. And you realize you're going to have to change your major. And all those things you dreamed about in pre-med or nursing or whatever go up in smoke. And you go, what will I do now? You didn't get the internship. You lost the job. Whatever it is. The, the, The list could go on and on. You feel it. It's deep and it confuses you. And you ask yourself the question, does God care? Is he even there? let me tell you, when you're asking that, it's a great time to ask the what question. Not why is God doing this, but what do I need to do now? And to answer it, based not just on your your feeling of the moment, 
But to base your answer solidly in Scripture, to say, what does the Bible say? Israel quoted for us James chapter 1 a little while ago. I want to revisit a section of it. Listen to what James tells us. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kind, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. If any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to you. But, but when you ask, you must believe and not doubt, because the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea tossed and blown by the wind. That person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. Such a person is double-minded and unstable in all they do. I just want to take a couple of minutes, a few minutes, and sit right here in this passage and pull out three or four or five thoughts that I think are important to us. They're important to me. They should be important to you as we think, how do we do what God wants us to do? He first of all says, consider it pure joy when tough stuff happens. The word consider is a term from accounting. Yesterday I was at Macan getting a, a Cuban latte. Some of you think that's the best drink they have. Some of you would disagree. But I was there and I was waiting for them to finish it. And I got talking to a student who was standing there. And I said, what's your major? He said, accounting. And I thought for a second and told him the only accounting joke I know. I said, I don't know much about accounting, but I think it goes like this. A one, a two, a three, accounting. And, and he groaned. He didn't groan out loud. He just rolled his eyes, pretended it was at least amusing. And it wasn't. It's worthy of a serious groan. So what does consider this word from accounting mean? It means to reach a decision after conscious reflection. It means to do the mental and spiritual math and come up with a decision that's based on that. It's to decide, this is what the Bible tells me to do, so I'm going to think about it. And then it says to choose joy, so I'm going to choose joy. It's painful, but I'm choosing joy anyway. When, when trouble hits, you don't feel good about it usually. Who likes tough times? But James says, consider it. Make a decision. Do the math and say, because I am a Christ follower and God is involved with this, I will choose joy. Not because you're clueless. You're just kind of going through life going, I don't know what's going on. But because Christ is there. Many scholars believe the James who wrote this was the half-brother of Jesus. Some scholars suggest that what you have in the book of James is collected sayings of Jesus. James' brother, he heard him say it, and he just records them and gives them to us. Now, we have no proof of that, and yet some of the stuff James said really sounds like stuff that Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus says, when people persecute you, you know what you're supposed to do? Rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven. Those are the words of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. In Acts chapter 5, the disciples were arrested and they were jailed and they were brought before the Sanhedrin and then they were, they were beaten. And it says when they left the Sanhedrin, they rejoiced considering self, themselves glad because they got to be counted worthy of suffering for the name of Jesus. Philippians 4 says rejoice in the Lord 
always. Hebrews chapter 12 talks about Jesus, who for the joy set before him, he saw the throne. He saw millions and millions and millions of people surrounding the throne in heaven, praising God, who for the joy set before him endured the cross. He saw what would eventually come, and he chose joy. Now, Scripture seems pretty clear. When stuff hits the fan, when trouble comes, when disappointment hits, when you're tempted to wonder if God cares, he says, don't whine, don't complain, choose joy. Which seems tough. Except he gives the reason. He says, the testing of your faith produces something positive. Testing's another word I want to think about. James talks about trials that come, and trials are things that come into your life to tempt you to veer from the path that God's given you. Maybe it's the temptation to some specific misbehavior, some sin. Or maybe it's the temptation to complain about God, to get bitter at Him. If He really loved me, He wouldn't let me go through this. Or maybe it's the temptation to believe that the commands of God maybe make sense and maybe don't, and you get to decide which ones make sense and which ones don't. You know, that's the first temptation that Adam and Eve experienced. Did God really say you can't eat from this tree? No, we can eat from all the trees, just not this one. Oh, come on now. You're surely smart enough to think your way through this one. If you eat from this tree, you get to be like God. And he tempted them to make a decision whether God was right or wrong. Those are the trials that come, temptations to us. Jesus says we're tested by them. It's a word that describes something by which something else is proven. And he says you're tempted. You have trials, but you get to prove by your response whether faith is real or not. Or is it just something that was passed down to you by your parents or by a youth pastor? Or is it something that requires the constant bonus of everything going right for you in order for you to believe? As long as God blesses me enough, I'll be okay. But if things get tough, I don't know. James says if you hang in there, if you keep believing, if you keep living the life, even when stuff sinks, something grows up in you. You become mature and fully developed in faith. You lack nothing. You discover that faith works. That's what James says. But what if you're not there yet? What if instead of acing the faith test, you're getting a C minus or a D or an F? What if the temptation to waver seems overwhelming? What if you can't figure out obedience? Huh? What if for a while you do it God's way and then you don't do it God's way and then you do it God's way and then you don't? What if you're struggling to get it? James says, ask for wisdom. Now, wisdom is not intelligence. It's not smarts. And wisdom is not the accumulation of knowledge. It's not even street smarts. James, you got to remember, was a Jewish man. And for the Jewish person, wisdom was having moral discernment. Being able to determine between right and wrong. Between good and evil. Between wise and questionable. He said, if you're not sure, if you're caught in the midst of temptation and this trial, ask God about what's right. And if you ask him, he will give you wisdom. He'll give you moral discernment. But you have to ask and not doubt. And right there, that trips some of us up. We go, not doubt? How can I not doubt? I have lots of doubts. Some of us do. Who doesn't, in fact, have some doubts? Faith 
by its very nature requires us to live in a land to believe towards something which we're not yet experiencing. If we were experiencing, it wouldn't require faith. It would just be experience. But here we are. We're here. And out there is the promise of God. And he says, this is how I want your life to be. And this is what the blessing will be like. And this is what eternally will be like. And this is what, what full obedience to me is like. And we're somehow stuck back here saying, I want to be there. I'm just not there. And I'm not entirely sure how to get there. And I don't even know if I can. It's doubt. In fact, there are some speak, people who speculate you can't even have faith unless there are some doubts in your life. Because if, without doubts, you wouldn't have to believe. So what is he talking about? How can James tell us not to doubt? He's talking about a specific kind of doubt. He says, don't be double-minded. It's not the absence of experiencing the fulfillment of God's promise yet. It's actually... A person who's believing two ways. It's the person who won't fully make up their mind. It's the person who's trying to keep their options open. It's the person who says, God, show me what you want, and I'll assess it, and then I'll look over here to see if there's another option, and I'm going to keep both my options open until I decide which one looks better. And James says, as long as you do that, you're not going to get it. You can't keep your options open. Maybe you could think about it this way. Uh, in June, on June 10th specifically, Patty and I will celebrate our 45th wedding anniversary. Yeah. It has been a great 45 years. Some of you say, how could a woman that young be married 45 years? Yeah. Can you imagine... Me saying we've celebrated 45 happy years of marriage if on our wedding day I'd invited two women to the wedding. And I came out with my best man, my brother, and my best friend Steve, and we were standing there waiting, and Patty comes down one aisle, and then this other woman walks down another aisle. And the pastor says, will you take this woman to be your wife? And I'm going... Could you imagine the, the confusion at that moment? Maybe he gets tired of waiting for my answer and she, he turns to Patty and says, will you take this man? I'm guessing at that moment she wouldn't have been as all in as she actually was that day. Because on that day she was the only woman for me. In fact, since then that's been true as well. It's not been hard, to, di difficult. To, to, I, I don't go through life going, oh, man, I can't have that woman. I can't have that. Oh, man, no. Ah, no. I, it's not denial. It's I'm all in with Patty. And being all in with Patty, she's all in with me. But the person who tries to play it both ways, who keeps his option open, doesn't get the blessing of God. He won't get wisdom if we won't make up our mind to be all in with God, we'll always limit what we can be. So let's go back to that reality I described a while ago. You were engaged. It ended. You were disappointed. Your parents just told you you're getting a divorce. They're getting a divorce. You flunked anatomy. You didn't get the internship. The list goes on and you feel it and maybe you feel it deep and it confuses you and you wonder, does God care? Is God even there? I remember years ago I was going through a point of struggle. I don't even know what the struggle is now, but I came across a verse in the Psalms. Psalm 56, it says to God, you keep track of all my sorrows. 
You've collected all my tears in a bottle. I mean, you care for me so intimately that you're collecting those. You've recorded each one in your book. This I know, God is on my side. God's on my side. This one thing I know, God's for me. When I'm unclear about what ultimately to do, I can take comfort in the fact that God's on my side. When I'm hitting tough times and I'm wondering the why and what's going on, I can take comfort in knowing that God is on my side. And if I let him, he'll use it to grow me. God's for me. I may not know why something happens, but I can have a pretty good idea of what the next step is. I may not know what step 20 is or what two years from now is, but I know what today is and what my obedience looks like today. And so I will choose obedience now because God's on my side. He wants the best for me. And he says, if I stick it out, if I stick it out, I'll be mature, complete, not lacking anything. And I'll receive the crown of righteousness that he promises to those who long for his appearing. If any of you lacks wisdom, ask God. But ask with a heart to want to know. And he'll say, I'll give it to you. Now let's live life together. Lord, it's easy for us to want to keep our options open. Forgive us for that. May we be men and women who simply say, I'm all in. God, I need your wisdom. But if you'll give it to me, I'll walk the walk. In Jesus' name, amen.